Hello, and welcome to the Complex Care Journal Club podcast. My name is Christy Malik, and I'm a pediatrician at Children's Hospital Colorado and your host for this episode. In this podcast series, we seek to discuss emerging evidence in the care of children with medical complexity and its implications for practice. I am delighted to have Dr. Stephanie Ames from the University of Utah School of Medicine joining me today. She is the lead author of the article, Perceived Disability-Based Discrimination in Healthcare for Children with Medical Complexity, which was published in Pediatrics this past July. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Stephanie, we'd like you to share a bit about your study, starting with the gaps you identified and how you developed your research aims. The overall goal of our research was really to understand parental perceptions and experiences with disability-based discrimination in pediatric healthcare setting for their child with either medical complexity and disability. This came about because we know that discrimination can occur in healthcare settings and is unfortunately common. With some adult studies reporting, one out of every five adult patients experiences some form of discrimination in their healthcare setting because of their identity. And while race and gender and ethnicity-based discrimination are probably more commonly reported, there's a growing body of literature recently that has been focused primarily in adults on disability-based discrimination. Some of these recent studies evaluating physician perspectives of discrimination have found evidence of significant bias in the physician workforce against adult patients with disability, including being unwelcoming of patients with disability into their practice and having negative assumptions about quality of life. Other studies have shown significant knowledge gaps for the care of patients with disability and knowledge gaps in health policy surrounding disability accommodations. Furthermore, other studies of adults have shown these experiences have the potential to significantly impact health outcomes. Particularly recent adult studies have linked disability-based discrimination to worse mental health outcomes, worse quality of life outcomes, and avoidance of care, which can concerningly exacerbate further health inequity. While these studies provide a concerning background, disability-based discrimination in pediatric healthcare has not really been explored, and an improved understanding of this experience for children with disability and medical complexity is needed in order to inform change. I particularly feel this form of discrimination is really important to understand and develop mechanisms to prevent, because patients with disability and medical complexity have high healthcare needs and are often interacting with the healthcare system therefore increasing the cumulative burden of discrimination and further exacerbating health disparities. And so addressing this was really important to our team. However, this topic really hasn't been explored at all in detail. And we know from some studies in adults that discrimination can present in many different ways. There can be subtle microaggressions that maybe even the provider or the patient don't recognize as discrimination, or there can be overt discrimination, such as denial of care. So we really wanted to first, before trying to develop any interventions or understanding how this impacts health outcomes, understand how it occurs for families first. We felt like understanding parent and caregiver perceptions and experiences was the most important thing to start with, and that would be best done through a qualitative study. So we conducted a qualitative study of family members or parents who reported experiencing discrimination in the healthcare of their child because of their child's disability and medical complexity. And that could be disability related to intellectual disability or physical disability or any any reported type of disability. We really wanted to purposely recruit families who had a lot of experience in the healthcare system. We wanted families to have experience in different settings. So not just in the NICU, but also outpatient, ED, subspecialty care, 
physical therapy, different types of healthcare encounters where they may have experienced discrimination in order to inform the most comprehensive evaluation of discrimination in the healthcare setting. So to look at these families with a myriad of experiences, we recruited families of children with medical complexity, which we defined as having two or more organ system involvement and or technology dependence, and also reported a disability related to physical, cognitive, communication, and or social function. We also only recruited families who had children who were older than one, again, with the hopes of increasing the number of healthcare encounters that they had had the potential to be exposed to discrimination at. Tell me a little bit more about these methods. You interviewed 30 participants from a very demographically and geographically diverse population using purposeful sampling, as you mentioned, and it's a really large number of participants for qualitative interviewing. So tell me about this recruitment process. Did you have families willing to talk or was it hard to recruit families? It was actually initially a little bit challenging once to figure out how to get families to know about the study, but really once we felt like we had disseminated the the information and families were aware, it was very easy to recruit, which is a bit disheartening because I feel like these experiences were pretty common for families. We were lucky to partner with the Children, Youth, and Special Healthcare Needs National Research Network and their affiliated sites, as well as Family Voices, which is a national family advocacy organization. And through both of these organizations, we distributed flyers and email announcements about the study. And it was really a self-referred process. So families saw the flyer and reached out to say, you know, I have experienced discrimination. I would be interested in participating in the study. And like I said, once we felt like people knew about it, we rapidly enrolled. About your methods, another thing that I was really interested in is understanding more about your using grounded theory as your approach. For our our listeners who may not know grounded theory, the idea is you end up developing a theory based on your data. Why did you decide this was the right approach for this project? So we went into this study not knowing what the experiences were that families had with discrimination. You know, the topic of the interviews was discrimination and experiences with discrimination. But we really had no a priori concept of what that looked like because there's not a framework for this in the literature or really well developed in theory. That's why we felt grounded theory would be the best to really ask questions and probe in different ways to find out the experiences that families had and then use the interviews to sort of develop the framework of this experience. And when we went into the study, we weren't looking for the perceived drivers of discrimination. It just came through the interviews. And so that's where grounded theory works well, is we don't go in with a preconceived notion of what the data is going to show you. You let the data tell you. And then another thing that is really useful in qualitative work is the way you code. So when we were coding, we had two dual coding with myself and another researcher. And We would review line by line each sentence from each interview and assign it a code. And then we would relate these codes to each other using memos or using the actual text to relate each other in a process called axial coding until they sort of grouped together in the theme. And then that theme built into a framework, which was when we thought we had thematic saturation. Did you feel like 30 interviews was sufficient, that these themes that you developed, which we'll discuss in a little bit, really were quite prevalent through your interviews? Yeah, I would say around maybe 18 to 20, these themes started to emerge. And then by 30, it was very clear that these were the themes. And I've done qualitative work in the past and have taken courses on qualitative work. And this study was really striking in how clear these themes were. There was not a lot of, oh, is that 
a theme or not. It was more like, what words do we use to describe this theme? Because it's very clear that it emerged. Really a beautiful example of qualitative work and how strong the results were in this study. So by 30, I felt we certainly had reached thematic saturation. And really for the last two or three, no new information was emerging. So Stephanie, tell me about your key findings. So through our qualitative study, we had six themes that emerged to build a framework of disability-based discrimination in pediatric healthcare. The first three themes that emerged involve perceived drivers of discrimination, which parents reported were clinician lack of knowledge in how to care for a child with disability or medical complexity. The second was clinician apathy or lack of interest in caring for children with medical complexity and disability. And the final was physician assumptions about what it means to have a disability or medical complexity. And these particularly centered around assumptions of quality of life. The final three themes were the manifestations or how parents perceive this experience occurred to them during their healthcare encounters. And the first and one of the most common was substandard care, which really describes the parent's perception that their child with medical complexity and disability was not provided the same diagnostic testing, the same physical assessments, the same treatment options that a child without disability would be offered, and that limited the care that they were able to receive because of the physician's assumptions about their child. The next thing that was really disheartening that emerged was dehumanization. And this category described multiple sub-themes of healthcare encounters where parents felt that the provider was not treating their child like a human. And this was really often interpersonal interactions where the clinician walked into the room and didn't acknowledge the child, didn't talk to the child when they were examining them, was talking about the child in front of the child without sort of censoring the way they were talking like you would with a child who is not disabled, and then also really inappropriate and derogatory comments made to the caregiver about the child. And the final manifestation was lack of access to quality care. And this theme had multiple sub-themes that were at different levels of discrimination. So first, in interpersonal interactions, where physicians outright refused to care for the child because of their medical complexity, which was a bit shocking to me and certainly disheartening for these families. Also, other things in this theme included lack of accessibility care in terms of accommodations made, no accommodations made for wheelchair scales or wheelchair access or handicap parking or just medical needs that a child might have during a physical encounter at the hospital or clinician's office. And then this also involved cultural barriers, which included not offering translation services at at different visits for patients who needed that, compounded the experience of discrimination. One of your quotes that was in your manuscript really spoke to me. The quote that was, my child has specialists. I need the pediatrician for simple, basic pediatric stuff, like write the referral, take her weight, do annual checkup. The pediatrician said, I really don't think that I can serve you. And I said, can you just be honest with me? What is it? She goes, I'm just not comfortable. I'm not comfortable caring for your daughter. I think it just kind of shows how discrimination can be on so many levels. And it's not even really for the most complex issues, which is where I would assume that it would come out. But it's even for the simple stuff like checking a weight. Tell me about anything that spoke to you a little more personally in your practice. Yeah, I definitely think these descriptions of experiences with sort of that overt discrimination, like I can't care for you as a patient, were really shocking and and sort of eye-opening because it wasn't just with general pediatricians who may not have the training to make them feel comfortable, but even with subspecialists, sometimes they say, I can't care for your child or I don't like to care for children like your child, which was really shocking to me. I also think that the dehumanization is something that maybe is under-recognized in 
healthcare encounters, not interacting with the child the same way because of their ability to communicate is different than a child without disability. So clinicians may assume that just because the child can't communicate verbally to you, that they don't understand what's going on, that they don't need the same interactions as a child who can. And parents see that, you know, they see that interaction that you're not treating the child like a child or a person. And it really is disheartening for them and is an example of differences in treatment towards children with disability. That was really striking for me. Another thing that was really striking is how parents combat this, particularly in inpatient medicine. A lot of families talked about how to humanize their child in the hospital to make people see that when their child is sick, no one feels good when they're sick. No one is happy and playful and, and having a great quality of life when they're hospitalized. And so to expect that from a child of medical complexity is a bit unrealistic. So putting pictures of their child at their happiest or pictures of their child out at camp, things like that would be what parents do to humanize their child so that they can make sure the providers see their child as a person and not just a disease process or their disability. I know this wasn't the aim of this manuscript, but did families talk about how they try to overcome interpersonal bias? There were some examples of how families work to overcome this. I think a lot of the adult literature shows maybe some avoidance of care, but that didn't seem to be what happened with parents. Like they're not going to let their child's health care suffer because of providers being discriminatory. What often happened is that they felt they needed to seek out health care somewhere else. So it put a burden back onto the caregiver to say, okay, this person wouldn't listen to me. They weren't treating my child equally or fairly. So I need to find another health care provider. And maybe that means traveling to find a different pediatrician. Or maybe that means seeking out a different subspecialist and that put a burden back on them. So I would say that was probably one of the most common ways that families mitigated it by sort of not tolerating it and trying to find someone else to help them. And then, yeah, the humanization, I think, sort of making sure everyone knows that their child has a good quality of life. Your study focused on interpersonal bias and interpersonal discrimination, but some of the commentaries that have been published after your article by Dr. Cook and colleagues and also by Dr. Marshall highlight the fact that some of this might be systems related. Is there anything that you felt like the caregivers, did they bring that into the interviews or do you feel like just because how your interviews are focused, it wasn't mentioned? It wasn't necessarily the focus of our interviews, but I do think that's important next steps. I think we've discovered a problem that I think people who care for children with medical complexity knew was there, but really putting words to it and and really validating the experience is what I hope this paper did. But we also need to understand that from the provider perspective, or why are they not interested in caring for children with medical complexity and disability? Why? What are the reasons that are barriers to care? Is it all implicit bias and just lack of interest, or is there something else more systematic that's driving that? And I think that will be helpful to understand in order to develop interventions. And so that's part of our next work is taking this from this angle to asking the providers those questions. I'm glad you're doing that. I'm really excited to hear from that end too, because you know I see it clinically at work every day. And it is something like, what are the next steps? What can we do as providers to improve this system that we're in, improve the education? As Dr. Cook's article highlights that it's really not even a priority for a lot of healthcare organizations. Yeah. And we hope that this work calls to attention that this is a problem and it has the potential to impact health outcomes. We have a ton more work to do to sort of link those two together, health outcomes in this experience, 
really developing ways to measure this better outside of qualitative work and also understanding the root causes from the provider perspective will help to inform future interventions, which I agree if you ask me now, I would say probably education-based, but also some systems-based issues need to be addressed in order to make the care equitable. Did you have a person with lived experience on your research team? Yes, this is something that I think really enabled our success. So we partnered with multiple families prior to interviews in order to develop the interview guide. And I think this would be my main advice for qualitative researchers who are hoping to particularly explore family experiences or or really any experience that a person might have is to partner with someone who's gone through that in order to develop interview questions that are both thoughtful and asking the question that you think you're asking. And so we went through multiple iterations and practice runs with different family partners that we recruited through our local family advisory committee and different contexts of their experience with healthcare in order to refine the interview guide before we launched it into the study. So from your study, what is the message that you would provide patients and their families? The goal of the study was overall really to help understand the parent experience and perceptions and let them tell their story. That's why the use of lived experience partners in the pre-interview phase was really crucial. We wanted to be able to ask the questions so families could tell their story. I really hope families know that we as a medical community are interested in learning from them and their experiences in order to make the experiences better in the future. And I also hope that this validates their experiences and lets them know that we're not alone in this and that hopefully this is just the beginning of the work we're going to be doing. And again, while the purpose of this study was just discovery, not intervention. We hope that future work will lead to interventions and resolutions. And what do you think the implications are for providers and their clinical practice? Specifically, what do you recommend for members of interprofessional care teams for children with complexity based on your findings? I think there's really two key actionable things that clinicians who care for children with medical complexity or see children with medical complexity could take away. The first is really to look at your bias, to assess interpersonal implicit bias and quality of life assumptions or assumptions about what it means to have a disability. We know from this study that it can be perceived to drive the way physicians examine, evaluate, treat patients with disability, or the way they offer things to families. And so really examining your own implicit bias and and trying to understand, would I do the same thing for a patient who doesn't have disability? Is it appropriate for me to not offer the same thing to this family that I would for a patient who does not have a disability? I think partnering with families and helping them to make the most informed decisions is crucial in healthcare and not making assumptions about what their goals and expectations for quality of life and their child's healthcare are without informing them and partnering with them is really key. I also think at an institutional level, there's a lot of changes we can do to really look around you know, your institution and say, what could we do to make this more friendly for patients with disability? Can we put more imagery on the wall? That was one thing that family said. You know, you walk into a hospital, all you see are healthy, happy kids. You don't see kids in wheelchairs. Can we put more imagery up to represent these families? Can we make sure that we have wheelchair scales in clinicians' offices where they may need to be measured? Can we make sure we have adequate handicap parking? Things like that that institutions can address are crucial to improving the access for these patients. And then I think advocating for change at the policy level regarding things that challenge families, home health care, care coordination, insurance coverage, things like that can be another way that physicians can help to sort of start to combat the systematic discrimination. Was there any findings from your study or in the data that was you felt 
significant to you that might not be published? One of the things we probed in this study was asking families and parents what they look for in a provider. What does a good provider mean to them? And from this, we can learn some lessons from these parents about how to provide care for children with medical complexity. The first lesson learned from that data was really parents are looking for physicians and providers who will use them as a resource. One mother said, I feel empowering parents and making them feel as a part of the team should be a primary goal. The parents should be a lot more involved and have a lot more credit. Another lesson learned was to show interest in the child as a person, not just a patient. One mother said, you can tell the difference between a doctor that is just looking at a bunch of files and a doctor that comes in and looks at her and treats her like a human. And the final lesson was be willing to learn and adapt, be willing to think outside the box and recognize as a provider that you're still also growing. And so I think those three themes are really helpful in providing care to any child, but particularly those with disability and medical complexity. Thank you so much for your time today, Stephanie, and thank you to your team for advancing the field of complex care. Thanks for listening to the Complex Care Journal Club podcast. We aim to highlight research that has potential to be practice changing, that values patient and family engagement, is relevant across disciplines and diagnoses, and that uses high quality or novel research methods. We invite you to join the conversation by suggesting an article that you would like to see discussed in this podcast by using our form provided on the Open Pediatrics YouTube channel. Thank you once again for joining us today.